Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the strange, the bizarre, and the man-hating films from the VHS era. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Hi, welcome to episode 10. It's a celebration. Oh, yeah, it is. And remind me at the end, because I'm going to announce giveaway details. If you at home would like to join us watching a 70s film about lost youth in the 60s that was made in the 90s, then, as of this broadcast, you will need some luck finding 1995's Teenage DiPello because it isn't on any streaming platform. The real video store nightmare here is just trying to find the damn movie. The director himself actually uploaded it to YouTube at one point, but it was likely removed due to a graphic medical scene in the film's later half. According... Is, it, is, is that how it was labeled? A medical scene? I'm trying not to spoil it. Gotcha. According to an official-looking Facebook group that I found, there was, or will be, a Blu-ray release, but I couldn't confirm its existence outside of that single page. So, listeners, your best bet may be ordering a copy off a bootleg VHS website. But if you manage to wrangle up a copy, then you, like us, can catch a glimpse into the life of a deadbeat woman who embarks on misguided and sometimes surreal follies of youth while shunning parental responsibility. I'm glad you point out that she shuns her parental responsibility because that is something that I did not catch my first time viewing, or it didn't stand out to me, but it certainly did this time. Anyway, as Leland pointed out, we are covering 1995's Teenage... I thought it was pronounced Tupelo, but maybe it's Tupelo. Oh, no. Do you know which it is? Because in, in the movie, Tupelo. someone says Tupelo. Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, this is... I don't know. If you live in Mississippi, tell us. Wait, but, we could just find a local news broadcast, right? I'll probably switch between the two. The anyway. Local news. No, this is important. We have to figure this out. We are <laughs> we are professionals here. All right. Hit me. Tupelo. Tupelo. All right. So Teenage Tupelo. Saying, what did I say earlier? Tupelo? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, now that I think about it, it's kind of adding some extra, some extra letters. Two below, two below. Well, Tupelo. I'm not, I'm not re-recording any of that. So that's Tupelo. fine by me. I'm pretty sure I said Tupelo in last week's episode, <laughs> but I really wasn't sure. At least we were consistent. I, I don't know anything about Tupelo except that it was apparently the birthplace of Elvis and has some notoriety as that, but. I did read some reviews of this film that said this movie did a really good job of capturing what it feels like to live there. And if that's the case, then I have no desire to ever go there. I like watching a movie like this. I don't really want to experience it. But so I this is directed by John Michael McCarthy, who I'd never heard of. He was an associate producer on Gorotica which I think like a lot of the VHS community will be familiar with that um, as well as gore horror. But uh, otherwise he's directed 
Um, we have 10 directing credits, but some of them are documentaries and shorts. Uh, I'm going to seek out his other movies because I love this one. Leland, what was your overall impression? I feel like this film shows off hints, whispers, similar vibes of the special brand of American poverty that was the focus in Gummo, except it doesn't have quite the same charm and it doesn't have like the same like poignant, disjointed, natural narrative. Oh, see, I love this movie far more than Gummo. Uh, we are not going to agree on this one. Yeah, no, I, I Gummo um, feels like I do not enjoy watching Gummo. Um, and all of Harmony Korine's movies feel too, I don't know what the right word is, maybe nihilistic um, to me. It feels like it's exploiting people for no reason. And, and yet he obviously has the artistic talent to do better. And so I'm just, at the end of the day, like I'd be happy if I never watched Gummo again, but I could watch this movie again tomorrow. I don't think Gummo was any more exploitative than going outside, lifting a large rock, and filming the bugs underneath it. He was basically just giving exposure to a subculture within the U.S. that didn't really get or that that wasn't really seen by many people outside of those who lived there but see that's what i don't believe because people from nashville are really upset about that movie because they don't think they don't think it portrays anything like the real tennessee or the real area and like I've been through parts of Tennessee and I, I've I've never seen anything quite like Gummo. So I think the part of the problem with that movie to me is he's making people think that's how poor people in America are, and they're not. I don't think that movie was broadly generalizing the the poor of Tennessee. I think it was just a pocket. Like I, I never get the impression that he was like putting like all of the poor populations of Tennessee on blast. Like I did, did not get that impression at all. I don't think there's any poor Tennesseans that are like the characters in Gummo. So that's my problem with that movie. It's it's it feels it feels unnecessarily and insincerely exploitative. It's it's not actually attempting at all in my view to actually portray what poor life in America is like. And yet it's pretending to. It has like the artistic veneer of pretending to. And I find that kind of offensive, actually. Hmm. But yeah, let's let's talk about this movie. Yeah, wrong film. <laughs> so Teenage Tupelo, to me, the it, this feels like like there's definitely some some Jack Hill influences in there. Like I see parts that remind me of Switchblade Sister, especially. Um, 
there's some David Lynch feels here to me. All of the the big breasted pinup imagery is very similar to like Russ Meyer films. The characters and their relationships remind me of early John Waters. Like this is a movie that is obviously an amalgamation of other filmmakers, but it feels natural to me. It doesn't feel arbitrary or unnatural it, it feels very seamless and so as i watch it i feel like i'm watching an original creation but i also feel like i'm watching bits and pieces of all those other movies kind of in the way that i'd see a tarantino film and apparently tarantino is a fan of this movie that is not a surprise no it's very um you can see the similarities to his work i mean this does not have the budget or the skill, I don't think, but it's going for something similar. This is definitely a indie film of its time. Yeah, uh, I I wonder if his later films have some of the same style. I'm curious, so I'll, I'll I'm gonna check them all out. I think most of them are on Amazon Prime, and then I'll get back to you. While trying to find this film specifically online i was able to see that there were blu-ray re-releases of his other titles yeah so we should be able to get at least one of them without refer without having to refer to smugglers and bootleggers i am curious why this one doesn't have a release so uh, my my understanding is this was released briefly by something weird video and it was their first sort of release of the 90s but something weird actively puts out dvds today so i don't know why this would have just been deleted from their catalog i mean it could just be they don't think anyone's gonna buy it maybe the director took away the rights yeah, yeah the director did straight upload this to youtube at one point yeah so it's it's a mystery but i hope that I hope that it gets out there and, and I managed to find a copy. So if you really look, you can as well. Um, but it, it stars Delena Tunnel, whose name is Delena in the movie. And she was only in a few other things, all, all things that John Michael McCarthy, um, John Michael McCarthy put out. I think she's got, she reminded me of Audrey Horn in, Twin Peaks. That's a pretty fair assessment. Like they have a really similar look and she's doing some, I mean, I don't want, I don't know if she actually reminds me of Betty Page or if it's just everyone in this movie does because it's like full of big breasted 1950s style pinup women. Anything else we should say about this movie before we, before we get into the story? This film is so obscure that the soundtrack is like the number one search result. You will find so much about the soundtrack that was created by a group named uh, Impala. But good luck trying to find the actual film. Yeah, apparently. So Impala is was apparently kind of a local band, a local surf rock band. And I really like the music in this movie. I there are a few vocal numbers that I think are atrociously bad, but all of the surf rock and rockabilly instrumentals that occasionally veer into more like surreal um, or 
classical parts. Uh, I think it's all great. Do you like this kind of music? It's not my thing, but I did listen to the entire album on YouTube. It's all uploaded and um, you know, it's pretty cool. You can have his background music. While, well, after I watched the film, I felt like I might have missed something. So I went looking for like some reviews. Normally, I never do this. I like never go looking for reviews after I finish a film unless it's like Roger Ebert or something. And I found a bizarre YouTube channel where this dude is so strange, has literally hundreds of videos where it's like he huffs paint thinner, chases it with some like burn cream and then flips on the camera to like dictate an impromptu film review from what looks like a bomb shelter. And most of these entries have like less than 20 views and there's hundreds of them from like the past like eight years. And this was the, <laughs> this was the, <laughs> the, the only review I was able to find on YouTube of Teenage Tapello, this this ranting that this guy did for like nine minutes. It had, I think, like 70, 80 views. Was he a fan? Yes, he gave it uh, he gave it full star rating. Here, so I'm did gonna... his review uh, enlighten you as to anything you might have missed? Not at all. Not a damn thing. Gotcha. I really do feel like you have to love and appreciate the films of other people in order to fully appreciate this one. Like, I feel like if I'd never seen a Jack Hill movie before I watched this one, I wouldn't have gotten as much. If I didn't know Russ Meyer, I wouldn't have gotten as much. Like, those earlier reference points, just like with Tarantino, I think really, um, they're the reason I think this movie is as good as it is. Yeah, perhaps this is just like a philosophy, like trying to read a philosophy book, like advanced philosophy book when you don't know the the pillars of what's being referenced. And so you like see all these names and theories being brought up and you're like, okay, I don't, I don't really get it. Yeah. So I don't know if there's like, I don't know if uh, our listeners are fans of this kind of stuff or not. Um, so I'm curious to hear feedback from people afterwards, uh, but I really like this stuff, and I think it certainly fits within the world of exploitation. And it, this is kind of a – it's really appropriate that something weird put this out because it seems so inspired by the types of films that came out on something weird earlier. But with all that said, we don't have a trailer for this movie, but we're going to play some of the uh, the theme song, the intro credits music. Um, and then we'll get into the story.
All right. So this movie opens with a quote that says, it is better to try and idealize the real than to realize the ideal. And it's attributed to an old Chinese fortune cookie. So what did you think of this opening quote? Normally, when I finish reading a fortune, I add in bed at the end of it, but it doesn't really work here. No, I don't think so. No. Did I tell you I got I got a fortune cookie? This is probably like a year ago, but the fortune's still on our fridge. It just said love, period. <laughs> Profound or lazy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I like it. Whenever I get a fortune like that, it makes me want to be the person who writes those. I feel like I used to know someone who did that. Well, they're definitely not in my life anymore. Yeah. Unfortunate. Mm. They could have been my entryway into the career. I'd imagine uh, nowadays there's probably such a large pool of fortunes to pull from that maybe the last time anybody wrote an original fortune was back in like the early 2000s. And now these like uh, these companies just have these huge databases to pull from forever and they just like cycle the material. Yeah. So and speaking of which, so this this uh, quote at the beginning of the movie, it can't really be from an old Chinese fortune cookie, right? Like usually when it starts with old, it's like an old Chinese proverb, right? Or an old Chinese story. But an old Chinese fortune cookie doesn't really make sense. Am I wrong there? I mean, I'm not a, a Chinese fortuneologist, so I'm not sure about like the <laughs> how they've been sourced and created throughout the years. Like, were there different eras of fortune cookie writing where they did like pull from like writings of Confucius in the beginning, and then it sort of like devolved into single words and lottery numbers i don't know but um the postmodern period <laughs> <laughs> the postmodern period of, of fortune cookies well i think this quote fits i think it quote it it fits the film but we open on after the quote we open on a couple of guys who are chasing their hunting dogs through the forest and the film is is shot in i think super 8 and it, it most of it's in black and white and it's incredibly grainy but i actually like the look of the film it reminds me of like eraser heads look what did you appreciate the aesthetic leland i'm typically not a fan of black and white for artistic intention but you know, I'm not I'm not going to hate a movie for it. I had no idea this film was made in the 90s until after I checked the IMDb afterwards. So bravo on the director for making his film look super old, because I think that was the intent. Yeah, I mean, it, it may have been budget um, budget concerns as well, but I'm not a film guy. I don't I don't know what it would have cost to to shoot on super eight at the time as opposed to like 16 millimeter or something but i i'm fine with black and white as an aesthetic choice uh i especially like it here though where it's it's a, combined with the graininess 
we've got so we've got two guys chasing their dogs through the woods and this one guy says the dogs are as loose as the crack of my ass i liked that quote hmm. um but or, for the most part these guys are just really annoying and i think they kind of start the movie off on a bad note yes they do <laughs> when when this movie is is like when it's showing intentional comedy it's bad like cringe worthy bad but i do think a lot of the rest of the movie is funny so it, these notes are there aren't a lot of them i think the best way to look at this film the best way to approach it is that the first 40 minutes are like the boring parts of twin peaks and then it's followed by weirdness that's reminiscent of the good parts of twin peaks all shoved into the end yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not bored by the first half of this movie at all i just think these moments of awkward humor are a little ill-fitting but the dogs have found a couple who are having sex in a treehouse and this is our main character delena and this guy she's sleeping with johnny two note and johnny two note is like a local rockabilly star i guess or celebrity if the song he sings in this scene is at all characteristic of his singing career i can't believe there is one <laughs> like it's atrociously bad i mean i think that's i think that's the joke right yeah i i mean everything about johnny two note except for the fact that he sings in two notes it is like a painful caricature of an a disloyal empty without character man right so do you think this guy is supposed to be like an elvis parody since elvis was born in the city as you mentioned earlier i don't think he's supposed to literally be a, a elvis parody but i think it's like i think the fact that like elvis influenced the rockabilly look right and so i think that he's just supposed to look like a rockabilly guy so he's like the side effect of elvis hitting fame and fortune yeah i think that that's fair the byproduct. Okay. So after this scene, well, as, as Johnny is going away because he has to, he says he has to meet with his agent like at midnight, but we can tell that he just doesn't want to be with Delena and that she is like passionately, passionately in love with him. In fact, as he's going away, she yells, I love you, Johnny two note. And we hear that same phrase echoed like before she falls asleep that night, which I thought was a great touch. Hmm. Um, so we, we, Delena walks home and right before she gets there, we get a shot of what we find out is her son. Who's very young. His name is Pookie and he opens the door and just howls at the moon. What did you make of this part? When, when I first saw this kid, I wasn't sure if he belonged to Delena or was just like another relative of the family. But him howling at the moon isn't really that weird when you compare it to the rest of the film. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Besides, kids do dumb shit all the time, right? Yeah, 
I don't know. I'm not around them that much. Is Howling at the Moon like a normal stage of development? This one time I saw a news story on uh, BBC where this kid was neglected by his parents and he basically spent all of his time growing up in the backyard with a pack of dogs, domesticated dogs. And Yeah, I know, time, I know this case. Yeah, by the time he was found by uh, law enforcement and government officials, he was uh, basically running around on all fours and barking like a dog. Yeah, he. I, I don't think he was ever able to fully relearn like human speech, um, which is often the case with feral children. Steven Pinker, who's a, a linguist at Harvard, he speculated that there was a critical period where if you don't learn language after that age, I think it's like age six or seven, then you'll never become capable of language. That that's just when the human brain has to develop language because none of these feral children seem to be able to learn to speak, even though they can learn to do other things. But otherwise, Pookie seems like a normal kid. As we see Delana go to sleep and she blows a kiss at her picture of Johnny, and then she dreams, I think like a music video of of Johnny and it's kind of standard rockabilly but his singing is just terrible all of the cutaways this and future scenes are in color they are the only scenes in color of the entire film right so it seems like it seems like a way to designate between reality and fiction which I, I think works kind of like the same way it works in the Wizard of Oz. IRL is so like bleak and gray. And then you got like the yellow brick road with Johnny Two-Tone in his music video with Go Go Girls. Right, exactly. Well, we see we see Delana dancing and it's very like 50s pinup style uh, outfit and and dance. Um but she, when she is up the next day, Delena's mother and her get into an argument. And their argument is just the mother says, where were you last night? And Delena says, why do you have to go and break my picture? And then they just say it back and forth to each other like five times. Was there a scene where the mom broke a picture? No. All right. <laughs> Not that I saw. Like when, when she blew a kiss at the picture, was it broken? I didn't. I couldn't tell that it was broken. Uh, I should rewind it and check. <laughs> so the <laughs> the mother, the mother got this letter in the mail that she like confronts Delena with, and she's like, "Don't you want to know what it says?" And Delena says, "I know what it says," and we don't know what it says at all. But eventually, it implies that. It's confirmation that Delena is pregnant. Do you like get mail confirmation of that? Like, is this something I just don't know about? Unless you know someone who lived through the 60s, I don't think you're going to be able to find it quickly with an internet search because just too much stuff shows up. Yeah, I just, it, it seems strange to me. Like, she would have just been told by her doctor or got, like, they had phones, right? So it just seems like a weird thing to get in the mail. But, Apparently, this is news that Delena is pregnant, 
and her mother wants her to give the baby to a couple that can't have children, but she doesn't seem sure what she wants to do. Shortly after this, neighbors come by with a petition, and this is where we find out that there's a, a former stripper and porn star named Topsy Turvey who is coming to town to show a movie that she's in. And they want Delena to sign this petition to prevent Topsy from coming to town, and Delena won't sign it. So this is, this is going to become an important part of the story, uh, this topsy-turvy storyline. Delena walks to work, and we really get a sense of the town. It really reminded me of the scene where Jack Nance is walking through the industrial wasteland-looking thing in the Eraserhead. Like, here we see an old cemetery with, like, a pitiful sign. We see railroad tracks. We see some abandoned industrial buildings. But this really does, uh, I mean, it looks like a dour place, right? Yeah, this is definitely a real, mostly a derelict industrial complex that exists in the city. Yeah, and so I, I don't feel like this movie is explicitly or overwhelmingly... Like, its primary goal does not seem to be portraying the sadness and alienation of living in a town like this but that's the backdrop right like that affects the mood of the movie i think so delena is is walking and we meet this girl gang who worships topsy-turvy and they tell us that delena looks exactly like her um, and this is also where they describe her as a stripper, then a nudist, then a waitress, and now she makes movies. I love that uh, ladder of careers. Does one be a nudist as a career? I mean, it's not necessarily a career. It's just a way of life. Ah, okay. So being a waitress is also a way of life then certainly could be see it's just an odd list of things to string together but we see the diner where delena works before she gets there and johnny is there but he's with another girl cindy and we also see like the owner and the cook of the the cafe who's presumably delena's boss and Delena's mother calls Johnny at the diner and tells him to stay away from Delena and tells him that Delena's pregnant. And he tells her he's not the father. And she says, don't worry about that. I'll take care of the baby as long as you stay out of Delena's way. Just then Delena shows up. And so she sees Johnny with this other girl. The boss fires her because she's late. And then she gets in a fight with Cindy and they're like scrambling over each other on the floor and pulling each other's hair and slapping one another and all the typical movies, girl gang fight type styles. Yeah. Johnny two tone two timing who saw that coming. Right. So 
Delana starts walking down the street, like away from Johnny. And she just starts stripping off her clothes and throwing each article of clothing along the railroad track, like a trail of breadcrumbs for Johnny to follow. Right. Until she's, she's just down to like her underwear. And then she puts a big coat on to cover everything. And I like, there's a scene where Johnny bends down and he picks up the bra and he has a like, what the fuck expression on his face. He finally catches up with her and he tells her that she's trying to ruin him. And then she, then he just punches her in the stomach. Like this was pretty intense. I mean, he, he was intentionally trying to abort the pregnancy is what. Right. But that's what makes it so intense. Like it's one thing if you just like punch your, your girl, not that I'm condoning that, but like in a movie that is a, that is a relatively common occurrence. Uh, but it's not a common occurrence that like a pregnant woman gets punched in the stomach. I mean, this is not exactly a, uh, a he's not exactly a gentleman, right? No, no. And also he, he doesn't seem athletic enough for that punch to do too much, but he'd probably beat her up more, but he's distracted by a topless girl who is further down the alley. And we quickly find out that she's part of the gang, the girl gang that we saw earlier, and they're there to rescue Delena. And so they beat up Johnny and Delena tells him that she's not going to kill the baby. And Johnny sings her another terrible song while he's lying on the ground, all bruised up. And after the song, he says, I think I hit a third note. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that was really funny. That was like the funniest line in the movie to me. Hmm. And, uh, and then he says, it's because of the power of your love. And that made me laugh too. <laughs> <laughs> I think this movie's really funny. Um, it, so she's, she asked the girl gang, like, why are you helping me? And they say it's because they're man haters. And in fact, their name is like the mad, mad man haters or something like that. This is very Russ Meyer. Have you seen any Russ Meyer films? I have not seen any Russ Meyer films and I have not seen any Jack Hill films as far as I'm aware. So Russ Meyer was obsessed with women's breasts. And so pretty much every actress in any of his movies well it's it's pretty much like the actresses in this movie where they're top heavy and they're topless a lot of the time um but his films are also all about female empowerment and he all most of his characters were always women they always came out on top and beat up like the helpless guys they were always double crossing one another and like conniving and and villainous but also heroic like he wasn't afraid to do show women doing things like robbing banks or shooting people or beating people up which at the time was really unusual and would have been considered blasphemous um so some people really see him as like pushing women's roles in film forward especially in exploitation film but this is very much a 
this is very much a Russ Meyer scene in this movie. When we see, for example, this guy Dave show up and he wants to dance with one of the girls, Ruthie, and they start to dance, but then she kicks him in the balls and runs away. Got him. <laughs> right. So Del they are all in the car and they tell Delena that she has to tell them a secret in order to join the gang. And so she shows them that she has a tattoo on her butt of two notes for Johnny Two Note. And she wants to get it covered up, but the tattoo studio, they go to find it that night and it's been gutted and there's nothing there anymore. But they say there's an old hermit that lives in the woods in a school bus and that he might be able to fix the tattoo. And his name is Captain Crypt. So we're going to get to a scene with Captain Crypt. But did did he did it seem like he was going to be a character at this point to you? I didn't really have any expectations at this point. We're like almost 40 minutes into the film. And this is all that's happened. All right. Yeah. Leland does not love this movie as much as I do. But we get a, we get a scene in color. This is a really odd scene. One of the girls is tied up, topless. Another is also topless, and she's eating a banana in like a slow, sexy way, right? And then another girl brings in a serving tray, and it has a glass of water and a piece of white bread on it. And she sets it down on the table. And then that's the end of the scene. What did you think of this scene? I had no idea where this was supposed to fit in. <laughs> but this is very, this, see, this scene is very David Lynch to me because he does this in Twin Peaks and in Mulholland Drive and in Inland Empire. Definitely in all of those works, he'll have scenes where it kind of cuts to a weird interaction between two or three people. And then that's it. That's all we ever see of them. Yeah, but at least a David Lynch film is consistent in tone from start to finish. This this literally has almost nothing going for it for like 35, 40 minutes outside of just being, I guess, slightly empowering, like 60s-esque. I mean, I like think it's... Female beat them up. I and, think it's funny. And I enjoy watching the aesthetic. Like, I think the first weird thing that happens is... Uh, Johnny's body just freaking vanishes after he dies. He just immediately despawns. Yeah, and I I forgot about that. And then that and then this scene just out of nowhere. I don't know. Just felt like an example to show some or an excuse to show some tits, which is fine. But in, in like the overarching, like uh, you know, in the overarching like um you know, meaning of the film. What, where does this sit? So here's, here's my theory because this scene's in color, right? And so we know it's a fantasy scene and I'm thinking that it could either be sort of symbolic to show the conflicts within this group or more likely, I think it's, 
sort of a vision of another world that then at the end of the film we see realized in Topsy Turvy's movie. Like, it's almost like a vision of one of her films. That's how I see it fitting in with the movie thematically. All right. But I don't know for sure. We see Delena in the woods. Oh, first we get a scene between her and her mother, and she tells her mother that she's having second thoughts about giving up the baby. And then she has this line. She says, why do I have to meet them? This is the people adopting the baby. Why does this have to be so hard on me? <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> like, she's the pregnant one, right? Yeah. So, so this, this is, is this also the last time you actually see her kid? He's only in like two and a half scenes in the whole film. Yeah, there's there's one part. It might be the same scene where she says that she's going out for the night and she doesn't like ask, hey, can you watch Pookie or, you know, make sure that he's going to be OK or anything. She doesn't oh. play any motherly role to him whatsoever. No, D Delena is like a textbook deadbeat mom minus a crippling drug addiction and it's like through negligence she is essentially strong arming grandma into taking care of her son and again but, e even the movie practically ignores the son's existence because he's in so little of the film well he's named pookie <sighs> God, at first i thought that was just like a pet name like something she called her little brother but everyone in the movie in and out of the family refers to him as pookie is that worse than baby yes <laughs> <laughs> so we see we see um delena in the woods and she steps in a trap that gets her yanked up into a tree and she's approached by this guy in a robe who we can't really see but I, we assume that this is captain crypt and she tells him that she wants to get rid of her tattoo and then he says do you like cha-cha music and she says she's never heard it and he starts up a chainsaw and cuts her down while laughing his uh, laughing maniacally and then he blindfolds her. This feels like a David Lynch scene to me as well. Yes, this is where the the, the good Twin Peaks kicks in. I, I didn't really think this was a real dude at first. I thought this was like some kind of demon that lived in the woods and gave people's tattoos. Well, it does switch to color. So, I mean, you know what? It, I thought of this character the way, same way I think of the bikers in Mandy. Like, yes, that I they're, was they're there. They're like part of the landscape. Are they human or not? Are they supernatural or not? Like, we're not really sure, but they are their own thing. And that's how I feel about this. Uh, <laughs> Captain Crypt. No, that's that's spot on. So we get another color sequence and Captain Crisp captain crypt uses paint brushes to draw this big elaborate shape on 
Delena's back. And this is after she told him that she just wanted him to do this like pinup girl and that it would be small. And he covers her like whole back. Um, and she's kind of mad about it. And she says, you know, I didn't want this. I just wanted one little thing altered. And he says, you cannot alter one thing without changing another. So what did you think of this scene altogether? Damn, I think he wrote the fortune cookie at the start. Probably. Yeah. I love the sort of magical realism of using the paintbrush to paint her back. But for all intents and purposes within the movie, it's a tattoo. And and that's cool and all. I just wish it the movie didn't take so long to get to stuff like this. Uh, I like the other stuff just as much, so I, I'm not impatient during it. The We go back to relative reality. She goes to meet up with the man-haters, and they're going to see Topsy Turvy's movie. And there's protesters outside who are chanting. I think this is what they're chanting. I think they're saying, nudie cuties got to go. Something like that. It's the same. Um, it's the same people with the petition earlier. Right. So they go into the theater and we see the, the film start and it's in color and we have a, a voiceover and this is Topsy speaking and she has like a horribly fake accent. What is she trying to sound like? Did, did she have like a fake accent? Yeah. Like a fake European accent. Oh, no. I don't even think I paid attention. All right. Well, she says... Before we start, let me tell you how to be a man-hater, just like me, topsy-turvy. And so it's clear that she's, in a way, this is like a cult, right? Um, and the girl gang in the movie is has bought into it. And she says there's three rules. Rule number one, you never turn your back on a male unless you want to be barefoot and pregnant. Rule number two is... Since woman gives life, she should be able to take it. And any time a woman kills a man, it's an accident. Rule number three, she says this. Girls, we may never get to that hunk of cheese. So let's be content to let the astronaut kiss our starlit feet. So take that hairdo reaching towards the sky and let it down. It's been years since grandma got the vote. So this is the third rule. What does that mean? Perhaps she is talking about the fact that there are no um, elected women officials in government or leader positions. Because she's talking about how, you know, grandma is, is not, what, what was the exact quote? It's been years since grandma got the vote. Yeah, since grandma got the vote, maybe that's too literal. What's combined together with the thing about the astronauts and letting their hairdos down. I don't know. I was very confused by this third quote, but I quite liked listening to it. It's it's equivalent to David Lynch's wacko lines, like when it, in Fire Walk With Me, that's, there's that scene where Laura Palmer says, I am the muffin. And you're like, what is she talking about? Right? Like, it's equivalent to that. That's what she says, right? I am the muffin. 
I don't remember that. Yeah, she says, I am the muffin. And then she's talking to one of the guys at the Black Lodge, Jacques or one of them. And he says something like, I am a wet fart. <laughs> and it's, it's just random lines of dialogue. I, I don't remember that part of Firewalk with me. <laughs> All right. Now I have to look it up and um, see if I have it right. All right. So here's here's the exchange. <laughs> I vaguely remember the wet fart line. Okay, so here it is. Laura approaches Jacques and Jacques and, and she says, Hey Jacques. And Jacques says, I am not Jacques. I am the great Went. And Laura says, I am the muffin. And Jacques says, And what a muffin you have, and makes motions of shooting his brains out. I am as blank as a fart. And that's it. That's the conversation. Fire Walk With Me is on HBO Max for some reason. So I could go back and look that up. We could do it at some point. I have it on DVD. Hmm. I I like that film. I know it's not very popular, but um, I think it com- complements the show well. It's better than most of season two. Yeah, that's true. Um, although on my, I recently rewatched season two and I, I've felt better about it. Maybe that was just in comparison to the return. Yeah. It might be a little bit of Stockholm syndrome too. Perhaps. Yeah. All right. So to get back to the film, um, we see Topsy in the movie and she gets a package from Paris and she's really excited that these are the edible panties she ordered. Um, but instead, there's what she calls an atomic bomb inside. But it's really just like aluminum foil wrapped up in the shape of a rocket. I hated this scene. <laughs> oh, I liked it. <laughs> so instead, we get a scene of the panties being delivered to Cuban revolutionaries. And we get a shot where the Cubans look at the screen and say edible panties really angrily. Um, but Topsy is furious that she did not get the edible panties. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing. Topsy is furious that she did not get the edible panties. And so she takes out a whip and starts whipping the postal worker. They give him a potion. (laughs) They give him a potion that turns him into a worm. And then they step on him while we hear his voiceover continuing to talk, saying, like, ow, that hurts. And then they step on him and they throw the bomb on him and we see the atomic blast. And that that's all we get of the, the topsy-turvy movie right now. So why'd you hate this? What are Cuban revolutionaries going to do with an atomic weapon? <laughs> What are they going to do? Well, I nuke the island. You can make it uninhabitable. I think the implication at the time was that the, you know, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis was all because we were afraid that the Soviets were putting nuclear weapons in Cuba. And so I think that's what this was an allusion to them being mailed the weapon by Russia. Was it nuclear missiles? I thought that was over just like regular run-of-the-mill like cruise missiles or icbms or something well the 
purpose of ICBMs, as far as I know, is to put nuclear warheads on the top. Do they have to be nuclear? I don't know. I don't think so. Anyway, that that was my understanding within the movie. That's what I thought was being referenced. Hmm. So the man-haters notice that Topsy is still in the theater, so they go to find her. And they find her, they open a door, and she's in a in the bed with this fat guy, and she's riding him like a horse. And so, of course, the man-haters are devastated because their idol was in bed with the man. And this whole philosophy is all about man-hating and, and being lesbian. So this is a travesty in the world of the film. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so they're all riding in the car home in silence. And we hear on the radio that Johnny was found dead. And. But how, right? His body vanished. Right. Exactly. I mean, I, it, presumably it reappeared somewhere else. <laughs> um, Maybe it, it was just so inconsequential to the man haters that they just couldn't see it anymore but it was still there. That might be granting too much symbolic credit to the film. Uh, Oh, that's too much credit. (laughs) But the man haters kick Delena out of the car just because she looks like Topsy. (laughs) And they're played by the same actress. So um, they, they do look identical, but yeah. So the, the man haters are furious with her because she looks like Topsy and Topsy betrayed them. And now we get to see the medical scene that you talked about. <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of no nowhere. No warning, no surprise. Yeah, we get... complete surprise. We get live baby birth footage. Apparently, this is Delena having her child. So I took this as a reference to Kroger Bab. Kroger Bab is, or was... A hero of John Waters, and he is most famous for, in the late 1940s, exhibiting a film called Mom and Dad, and he would drive around the country and rent out grindhouse theaters and show this movie, and it included footage of a live birth. And it was a way to circumvent censorship laws because it wasn't technically pornographic, but you could get away with showing a vagina on screen. And so John Waters has joked that people must have gone and masturbated to the vagina and just ignored the baby, um, which I can't imagine. But uh, I think that that is what this is a reference to. Um, it's a bit of homage to Kroger Bab and Mom and Dad. Uh, other, otherwise, this scene is just completely out of left field. Like, why is it here? I, I mean, she's just pre- dreaming that she's having her kid, right? Right. So after the, the baby footage, we see Delena. She's leaving a letter for Pookie. Um, saying, like, she has to do something and she's sorry. She hopes he understands one day. And she goes off, topless, of course, 
to find Captain Crypt in the school bus in the woods. Um, but unfortunately for us and her, he's not there. We switch back to the Topsy movie in color, and Topsy is looking for her, quote, number one sidekick girlfriend. Like she gets out of the bed and this is who she calls for. And she, the, the sidekick girlfriend is in the basement with a tied up caveman. And I guess Topsy kills her, right? I only saw this movie yesterday and I can barely remember some of these scenes. And that is not normal for me. So perhaps the dreamlike nature of this film has had that effect has had that that memory effect on me where it's like so strange so disjointed that uh you know i can't recall it properly because i've only experienced it once yeah to some extent that was my experience like first time i watched this movie it was sort of like having a dream where the plot doesn't really matter and so you're just paying attention to the images which kind of float in and out of view and then the memory of it is hazy afterwards and sometimes when i'm watching movies like that i actually do drift in and out of sleep but i like that experience like i tend to like those films and so i could see that happening in this movie the second time watching it i did not have that experience but it was because i was taking notes if I hadn't been taking notes, I imagine I would have slipped much more naturally into the dream. Normally, my note taking is pretty light, but well, especially in this film, I took way less notes than normal. Because I'm trying to guide the plot, like I, I take pretty detailed notes. I try to type as much dialogue as I can, hmm. but I can type pretty quickly and I'm used to transcribing interviews, so it's not... It's not too much, too difficult. So we see Topsy at the end of her film start to walk into the sunset, and there's a voiceover about women in the post-apocalyptic world. And so this is feeding, like, after the atomic bomb, we're told that only women survived, that all men died. Delena's come to the theater to see Topsy, and that's why we're seeing part of the movie. And Topsy asked Delena if she's into all this man-hating garbage. And Delena says no, that she only hates one man. And Topsy says, so you're not a man-hater? And Delena says no, I'm what you would call knocked up, which I liked. So they continue to talk, but we don't see that part. We see that the couple who wants to adopt Delena's kid meets up with Delena and her mom in the parking lot of a mechanic. And the couple is there to meet Delena and talk about adopting her child once it's born. But at this point, we find out that Delena is actually Topsy in disguise and that Topsy agreed to take Delena's place so that Delena would have time to escape town and get away from her mother. And so this is so devastating to Delena's mom. She collapses on the ground and cries and Topsy turns on music on a boombox and dances above her in the parking lot. Yeah, total alpha move. Yeah. What how how do you like this this scene? 
All right, you ready? Ready for this overinterpretation? Sure. Uh, I kind of got this impression that the reason why the mom took it so hard and collapsed is because Topsy and Delena are actually related. They might be twins. And that the mother actually put up Topsy for adoption. And she was just in so much grief of seeing Topsy again that she uh, could not handle it. So I thought about that and the fact that even though Topsy has that ridiculous accent, she we're told she's from Tupelo. So they, I mean, all of the circumstantial evidence suggests that they're sisters. But this is not the final scene, although I kind of think it should should have been because I love this as a final image, like Topsy dancing on top of the mother. We see the man haters and they're sitting in bleachers and they're talking about buying a new car. And then they're like, like we're going anywhere, uh, suggesting that they'll never get out of Tupelo. And then the, the whole world switches to color. And that's the end. Teenage Tupelo. So Leland, what are your overall thoughts, impressions, and rating out of four? Yeah, we're just going straight into the final. <laughs> yeah, it's let's do it. You know, I, you know, before before this podcast, I was under the impression that perhaps I didn't watch this film under the right mindset. And this has only solidified it. Maybe it's like just bad timing on my part. Perhaps my chakra was tainted by the evil affliction of celestial Mars. As it took influence from the 12th astrological house. And because I failed to wear my red coral charm or donate enough saffron to the poor, the essence of my soul was uh, assaulted with negative energies. And um, much like Delena's attempts at locking down Johnny into a serious relationship, perhaps finding enjoyment in Teenage Tupelo was a lost cause from the start. Like, I can't think of another film I've seen recently where I told myself out loud during the credits and consequently to my cat like man i i just wished i liked this movie more and the cat had no input and i suppose i have not ascended high enough on the self-actualization pyramid to adequately self-diagnose why this is so why i didn't really um get it but i am willing to find solace in the fact that the search for why in immaterial matters is pragmatically speaking um, sort of an extraneous luxury sometimes. Like sometimes things just be and my brain chemicals did not grok this film. And so I hate to do this, but for me, this is a one star film because I, it did not resonate with me on any level. And I would, I would not take my experience as anything universal for other people's enjoyment of this film. It just did not resonate with me. I don't think it's bad. It just 
wasn't my thing. I think that's fair. And I think, I think the majority would probably not enjoy this film. Like there is not many people I would recommend this movie to every week. Uh, my wife asks me what movie we're doing in case she wants to watch it with me. Like when we did the baby, like she was down, she loves that movie, but I didn't even offer her the chance to watch this because I knew she would hate it. But I really like this movie. I had two different experiences the two times I watched it. The first time I watched it, it struck me as a really original work, and I just got sucked into sort of the dreamlike feel of it, especially as it went on. I mean, I thought it was really funny too, but there was also sort of a magical realism quality about it that like almost like a coffin Joe feeling that sucked me in. The second time I was much more aware of the reference points and the inspiration from other filmmakers that I really like Jack Hill, John Waters, Russ Meyer, David Lynch. It's, on the one hand, the integration of those influences is really organic and feels really natural and unforced. On the other hand, there are moments where I wish I was just watching one of those movies instead. Like, there were definitely scenes during this movie where I thought, well, Russ Meyer did that better. But for this being made in the mid 90s and have it it feels like a 90s movie um and it has a great surf rock soundtrack that borders into like experimental at points uh and rockabilly at others yeah the vocals are terrible um but that's the minimum of the music here the acting for the most part is as you would expect in a movie like this and i was fine with it i really not sure if i want to give this three and a half or four but because of leland's one i'm going to counterbalance it with a four four stars oh yin and yang has been rebalanced hey we can't agree on every movie so that's it for this week next week we're going to watch the 1971 film by Kent Bateman, The Headless Eyes. This was a wizard big box video release uh, that looks super cool. I picked this one up back when I was buying out video stores, uh, but I just recently acquired another copy of it. This movie... Like, it's not a good movie by any means, but it's a really authentic feeling movie. And it is one of, I think, the movies that captures best the early 70s grunge and dystopia of New York or of, like, major cities in the United States. Um, Like, just recently, Amanda and I watched the new Son of Sam documentary on Netflix, which is pretty good. And there they talked a lot about just how New York felt at that time period. And I feel like this movie captures that really well. Uh, and that 
that leads to me enjoying it more than I probably should. Um, but I feel like if you like movies like Basket Case or um, Slime City or Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer isn't in the city, but it has a similar grittiness, like a similar realism. So if you have not seen this film, check it out. It's really easy to find. It's on YouTube. It's on Tubi. It's owned by Charlie Band now, so you can get it pretty much anywhere for cheap. Unless you want to buy his VHS reissue for a inflated price. Who is Charlie Band? Charlie Band uh, was, at the time this movie came out, the owner of Wizard Video. But he would go on to be the owner of Full Moon Pictures. Oh. And he wrote and directed many of Full Moon's films. Um, and he just recent, like this is going back, I think four or five years, he came out with this announcement that he had discovered in a warehouse boxes of original videotape boxes for wizard video releases. So stuff like the headless eyes and demoniac and the beast and zombie. He was like, we found all these original boxes and I'm going to make new tapes for the inside of them. And we're going to sell them as a artifact of this era. Well, then they, they sold them on the website for, I think, 50 bucks each. <laughs> and pretty soon, I think most people started to realize that they don't look quite like the original boxes. Like, they're pretty similar, but there are some differences that you can observe, like the type of paper. And so it came across as a disingenuous scam. And what I imagine happened is that Charles Band, somebody told Charles Band, guess how much these old movies are going for on eBay and just got a glimpse into the tape market. And he thought, how can I capitalize on that? I know I'll say we discovered all of these. So anyway, Charles band does shit like that, that makes him irritating, but I'm actually a fan of a lot of his movies. What an American entrepreneur. Yeah. So that's way too much introduction to Headless Eyes, which we'll cover next week. Um, until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, uh, where I'll post everything that we do. Um, please, wherever you're listening to us, rate, review, subscribe, write us mean words, but that'll help us get the word out. And watch the Instagram over the next couple of days. I will be posting some really cool giveaway uh, information in celebration of us actually making it through 10 episodes. Like, got to celebrate the small steps. Um, so there's going to be some cool tapes, some cool magazines, some other entertainment memorabilia. And uh, it'll be some easy rules and someone will get a really cool gift. So that said, Leland, any last words? How can I enter this giveaway? You're ineligible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, in that case, thank you listeners for your continued support. Uh, thank you for me as well. And until next week, goodbye.